I love this week. And if you are a follower of Jesus, my hope is that your heart just said amen. Do you love this week? Holy week. It's the greatest week of the entire year. Today is what has been historically called Palm Sunday. I want to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We have been in the book of James in a series through the book of James. We're not done with that, but we're going to pause it for a couple of weeks as we venture through Holy Week with Palm Sunday today and with Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday uh, next week. I want to invite you uh, to prepare your Bibles for Mark chapter 11 today as we view the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, wherein Jesus accomplishes the greatest feat ever accomplished by anyone throughout all of history. He pays for our sin on the cross. But Holy Week does not start on Friday. It starts today. Mark chapter 11, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately." And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, and it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Lord, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would be at work amongst us. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts, stir our affections for you, that we would long for the King, the one King, the true King, eternal Jesus Christ, that our hearts would declare Hosanna, that we would pledge our allegiance and loyalty to you, Lord, and that we would be hungry for your arrival. In Jesus' name, amen. Passover always began on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. When I say Nisan, we're not talking about the Japanese automaker. There is a month in the Jewish calendar called Nisan, and the historical celebration and feast of the Passover always began on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, which would correlate and correspond with the early parts of the month of April in our, Gregor, in our Gregorian calendar. And we know that the year um, that Jesus was crucified, the Passover was on Friday, that it began on Friday, 
and the day that Jesus was crucified. With Passover always starting on the 14th uh, day of the month of Nisan, scholars have pinned Jesus' crucifixion to one of two days historically. It was either Friday, April 3rd, the year A.D. 30, or it was Friday, April 7th, the year A.D. 33. And there's scholars who debate both ways. I don't really care. Um, what I do know is that it was a Friday. It was the 14th day in the month of Nisan. It was the first day of the Passover. Jesus and his disciples are on their way up to Jerusalem, was what anybody said when they were going to Jerusalem because it was elevated on the mount. And whether you were coming from the north or the south, if you were going to Jerusalem as an Israelite, you were going up to the city of God, up to Jerusalem, up to the holy city. And Jesus and his disciples, like all the Jews in the region, are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover to this holy city where all these events would unfold. Now, during this year of Holy Week, where Jesus enters the city preparing to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind, there are hundreds of thousands of fellow Jews who also would have been descending to that city. Historians would say that around one million Jews would be in the city that week. It's a lot more than normal. The city was packed. Imagine the city full of more people than usual. Maybe your memory is not too far removed from a couple of years ago, September of 21, when the Ryder Cup came to town. I live about 4.7 miles from Whistling Straits. I live in Howard's Grove, and I'm about 4.7 miles from Whistling Straits. I want you to think about this, almost five miles away from the golf course. I remember one of the days when the rounds were going on and there was a line of cars from one of the exits, one of the multiple exits that went all the way from Whistling Straits all the way to Highway 42 and then curved down south down 42 blocking my driveway. And I live 4.7 miles from Whistling Straits. That week where people from all over the world, golf enthusiasts, it's the largest, greatest golf event um, in, in the world where people come, especially from Europe, because of the rivalry between Europe and the United States and the Ryder Cup. That's what the whole thing is about. It's an incredible week, all sorts of energy. All the hotels are slam-packed. All the restaurants are rejoicing because they're getting all these patrons coming to their business. There's nowhere to stay. People who live out of town who have a family who lived here, maybe you, maybe this happened to you where you get your friends who are fans of golf call and say, hey, you got your guest room open? Can I come and stay? Some of you I know also opened up your homes to become Airbnbs that week to let people come and stay in your house so you could make a little cash. All sorts of influx of people into our community that week, hustle and bustle and energy. Even Michael Jordan was here. Think about it. All that activity and energy is very similar to what it would feel like during the Passover in the holy city of Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people descending on the city of Jerusalem. On Monday of Holy Week, 
Jesus proceeds into his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the humble shepherd king with all these people present. Mark captures a few elements of Jesus' triumphal entry that serve to make it clear to us that Jesus was not simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was not just the victim of circumstances where he could have made better choices and not found himself where he was. He was not someone where we could go, oh, Jesus really could have played his cards better and dodged being killed on the cross. On the cross, Mark captures these details. He displays Jesus' sovereign rule so many times throughout the week. One of those ways that he captures that, this meticulous plan of God, is through the account of Jesus' triumphal entry. Jesus is staying in Bethany, a city, a small town outside of Jerusalem with a smaller village in between Bethany and Jerusalem, that smaller village called Bethphage. Jesus is staying in Bethany probably with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he's probably staying at their home, he and his disciples, they're, they're welcome there, they're with friends there. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead not too long ago. These are believers. These are disciples. They are followers of Jesus. Jesus is staying there, and he tells two of his disciples, hey, go into the village ahead of us, which was probably Bethphage, and when you get there, you're going to find a colt tied up. Start untying it. Imagine if you're one of these two disciples, and he's telling you to go into a town and do what kind of today could be like Grand Theft Auto, and he tells you, untie a colt. And they've got to be thinking, uh, Jesus, what if somebody stops us? And he says, if somebody asks you what you're doing, tell them the Lord has need of it, and it will be returned immediately afterwards. And of course, Jesus' sovereign display, his foreknowledge and his meticulous plan of the Father is set forth in what he tells these disciples and what happens when they go into the village. What do you know? They find the colt tied up. And they start untying it, and they're probably going like, how's this going to go? And of course, somebody says, what are you doing? Because imagine if it was your car, your motorcycle, your moped, whatever. You'd be going, uh, (laughs) excuse me, that's not yours. And Jesus ministered peace to them by telling them what would happen. And of course, it went exactly as Jesus said. They untie the colt, and they say the Lord has need of it. And the owner lets them walk away. And Jesus continues into his his triumphal entry. This isn't the only time in Holy Week where Jesus' foreknowledge of God's perfect plan is exposed. What we just read as we partook of communion from Mark chapter 14, two chapters later than this, where the disciples were saying, hey, Jesus... uh, Where do you want us to go prepare for the Passover? And Jesus says, go into the city. You're going to see a man standing there with a jar of water. And you're going to follow him to his master's home. And you're going to tell the master of the home. um, The teacher wants to know where he can prepare um, the Passover to receive the Passover with his disciples. He'll take you to an upper room that's already furnished and ready. Prepare there. And what happens? Exactly that. Now, there are some skeptics, maybe some secular scholars who would say, well, Jesus could have gone ahead and said, hey, on this day, I'm going to send some people and they're going to come. Make sure you've got your cult tied up. 
And hey, on this day, I'm going to send a couple of people in. Make sure you've got somebody walking through the city with a jar of water at such and such time. The point that Mark is trying to make throughout his gospel is that Jesus is not just another man. Mark's gospel is written in a way where the hiddenness of the Messiah of Christ builds to Jerusalem where all the unfolding comes to pass, the veil is pulled off, and Jesus is exposed as the Messiah. Remember, everything up until this point, whenever Jesus performs miracles, when he casts out demons, when, when he heals people, when he raises the dead, what does he tell people? He keeps on over and over and over saying, hey, don't tell anyone. My time has not come yet. Make sure, go show yourself to the priest, but don't tell anyone what I did because my time has not come. The hour has not yet come. It's not time yet because he knew if he said all the things that he would later say this week in Holy Week or if that he made the, the declarations through his actions and words that he makes in Holy Week, they would have tried to kill him early. But now the time has come. God's plan is unfolding. It is the week. Passover is here. And he's going to fulfill God's perfect plan. Jesus dictates things that are yet to happen. We can go further uh, to see Jesus' foretelling of Judas' impending betrayal of him. Saying, one of you will betray me. And they're all going, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And they say, he says, it's the one who dips. And it was Judas. Further, he goes on with his sovereign foretelling to say, also, all you guys are going to bail on me. Fulfilling the scripture where it says, I struck the shepherd and the sheep scattered. And Peter, passionate Peter, goes, oh no, not me, Lord. They might, but I'll die for you. And Jesus goes, you're cute, Pete. That's the... Stephen paraphrase, it didn't really say it like that. In fact, Jesus goes on, of course, to tell him, actually, Peter, when the rooster crows, the third, uh, when the rooster crows you will have denied me three times. Peter is in denial about his denial. But Jesus showing and Mark capturing to show all of us thousands of years later that this wasn't just some unfortunate circumstances. Jesus was not at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was at the exact place in the exact moments accomplishing the exact things that the Father had planned before the foundations of the world. This is a holy week. Mark captures these details that we might see. And this is not some accident. Rather, Jesus is not some ill-timed victim. He's the sovereign Lord who rides into the city of Jerusalem as its king, as the king of the world, as the king of the universe, as Lord of lords who would willingly lay down his life for his people. That no one takes his life from him, yet he laid it down. At any moment, any moment he wanted to, Jesus could have resisted. He could have denied. We're talking about God in flesh. Jesus Christ, the man who is God and man at the same time. Jesus could have, when he's in the garden on Thursday night praying, vexed over what he's about to have to go through for all of us, and all the soldiers come with Judas to arrest him. Jesus could have said, no! 
and made all of him fall over or fly 50 feet away. He could have snapped his fingers and struck him blind and then just walked away. When he was standing before Pilate and when he was being judged, when he stood trial, everywhere he went, he could have at any moment, when he was being beaten and whipped and when he was being nailed to the cross, all of those things, he could have done something miraculous to deflect the, 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 the pain, the penetration of these torturous devices, the nails. Further than that, he could have done what the mockers were calling him to do. He, on the cross, could have gone, enough, and floated off of the cross and said, you done messed up. He could have done it at any moment. He has the power and the authority. Yet thank the Lord on Thursday night, even when in his flesh and in his vexation where he's sweating blood over what he's about to go through knowing everything that's about to happen just like he knew the colt was tied up just like he knew the pot of water was being held by the man who would lead them to the house with the upper room just like he knew that the crow would call and that Peter would deny just like he knew that, Peter, that, that Judas would betray. He knew every single whip that was about to wrap around his flesh and tear it from his body. Just like he knew all those other details, he knew every strike of the rod that would come to his legs and his torso. Just like he knew the rooster would crow, he knew that the soldiers would mock him and curse him and spit in his face. He knew every hair of his face that would be ripped away with bleeding from his face. He knew every single thorn on that crown of the plant that he created that would pierce his brow. He knew everything, every brutal moment he was about to go through vexed in the garden, sweating drops of blood, saying, Father, if there's any other way we can do this, I'd love that. Is there any other way if this cup of your wrath could pass from me? I don't want to drink it. I don't want to do this. That's my paraphrasing. And thank God for the faithfulness of our Messiah who mustered up the courage, the purpose, the will to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Those things that took place on what we call Good Friday. What a good Friday. The best Friday. We used to watch a series when I was growing up. Friday night was family night. We'd order Little Caesars and watch TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. I hope and pray this Friday we can say, Thank God it's Friday. What a good Friday. Friday.
all those things that took place on Good Friday. Let's rewind, if I can see my notes, to his triumphal entry on Monday. The same Jesus who could have entered on an elephant with an entourage. He could have entered with a royal caravan with trumpets blasting and dancers dancing and twirling ribbons and banners. He could have rode on a choice stallion like most warrior kings would, coming into the city on a victorious statement of this conquering stallion. He could have rode in on the chariot of war as this valiant, victorious, conquering warrior king. Yet he comes on a humble colt of a donkey. Why? Because Jesus is coming again by meticulous design as the long-awaited Messiah. He fulfills ancient prophecy after ancient prophecy. He fulfills promise after promise from his birth to his work and to finally everything that's happening this week. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah saying this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall be from sea to sea or his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus enters the city on a colt, on a foal of a donkey, this beast of burden. Just as the prophet Zechariah had declared hundreds of years before, Jesus is fulfilling the prophet Zechariah's words, saying on this donkey, I am the humble shepherd king Zechariah was talking about. As he's coming in, he's saying, I'm the one the prophet was foretelling hundreds of years ago. Not only is he fulfilling prophecy, but there were other significant images taking place. Remember how Jesus told the two disciples, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. If you didn't know, in Bible times, in ancient Near Eastern culture, the king's horse or the king's ride was only ever allowed to be ridden by the king. No one else was allowed to ride that ride. And these meticulous details of Jesus riding not only the foal of a colt of a donkey fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, but also saying this colt will be one that no one has ever ridden. One more thing, affirming and solidifying and declaring, I am the king. Every step of this one more layer of the veil being pulled back to see Jesus fulfilling these prophecies. And the people, this massive crowd that was stirred up by his arrival, it was not foregone on them. They perceived it. 
They understood that their long-awaited Messiah, their powerful king, was finally coming into Jerusalem, and they greeted him as such by declaring what the prophet or the psalmist had said in Psalms 118, 25, and 26, saying this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They're declaring this word, if you read Mark or if you read the account of this in John or in Matthew, this word, Hosanna. Hosanna, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew word, literally meaning, please save or save now or save us. When they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, they're saying, save us, save us now and the highest one, you high one, would you save us, please? And then they're declaring Psalms 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this humble donkey without an army, without a material force, these people are declaring, save us. Save now. Save us, please. And just like the Old Testament, when King Jehu was coming into town, inaugurated as king, the people take off their cloaks cloaks and their coats and they throw them on the ground as King Jehu would come through. Jesus, similarly, they're coming through and people start casting their coats on the ground before Jesus' path, declaring, we recognize you, our king. Similarly, just like in the Maccabean War, when they had a great victory and the leaders are coming into town, they start taking palm branches, waving them, a national sign of identity for the Israelite, waving these palm branches and laying them on the ground for the kings to come over. They do this for Jesus one more way, saying, you are the king. You are the long-awaited Messiah. Save us from Rome. That's what they thought was happening. Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem on the donkey. He rides triumphantly through the city, triumphantly all the way to the temple, and he enters the temple with everyone watching, everyone saying, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Can you believe it? He's finally here. He's really, the thousands of years we've been waiting for the fulfillment of the promises, the thousands of years we've been waiting for the descendant, the offspring of Abraham, the thousands of years we've been waiting for the king of the line of David who would come and restore the throne and reestablish the golden years. It's happening. Can you believe it? He's finally here. He's going to take over. He's going to kick out Rome. He's going to liberate us. The oppressors will be gone. Our king is here. And he goes into the temple and you're going, what's he going to do? And Jesus comes into the temple and he looks around. All right, guys, let's go. And you're going, wait, I thought you were going to liberate us. And he goes with his disciples back to Bethany. And he goes to bed. And he does nothing. These people who were lauding him and celebrating him, I'm assuming, are walking away going, What just happened? I thought he would go into the temple and and give some speech, at least. Maybe he would rally the nation to rise up against Rome. And he went into the temple and looked around and left. 
Talk about anticlimactic. He goes into the temple, assessing it, and he leaves. Most scholarship agrees that Jesus came to Bethany on Saturday, this Holy Week schedule. He rode into Jerusalem on the donkey on Monday, this triumphal entry. Then he came back on Tuesday. That's when he cleanses the temple, cracking the whips, turning over the tables, chasing out the money workers, people who are trying to profit in the house of God. On Tuesday and Wednesday, he did more teaching in Jerusalem, primarily at the temple. Then Thursday is the Last Supper with his disciples. Thursday night, he's in the garden praying and is betrayed by Judas. Friday, he goes on trial and is crucified. Now remember the millions of people in the city for the pilgrimage of, uh, to Jerusalem for the Passover. According to the commands of God, these Passover lambs, commemorating the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, the priests would begin sacrificing the lambs at 3 p.m. on the 14th of Nisan. That's when every year, 3 p.m. on the 14th of Nisan is when all the families of Israel would gather their lambs or goats, depending on their wealth. They would bring them to the temple, and at 3 p.m., the priests would begin sacrificing those lambs. Archaeologists and historians have uncovered massive, massive troughs and canals that would lead from the temple to the Dead Sea to carry the flow of blood out of the temple. With all these families represented, there would be some 250,000 lambs and goats sacrificed. And it began at 3 o'clock on the 14th of Nisan. Friends, do you know the hour that Jesus died? 3 p.m. on the 14th of Nisan. You recall John declaring of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Lamb amongst the 250,000, these priests doing their work, and they didn't even realize that they were also offering the one true final Lamb who would pay for the sins of mankind once and for all, that there would never need to be a sacrifice ever again. How do we get from the triumphal entry on Monday, where Jesus is being hailed as the Messiah, lauded as king, to Friday where he's being murdered as a criminal? Because you may recall, according to Scripture, that when Jesus was put on trial, the people, the crowds, declared, crucify him, crucify him. Crucify him. The crowds that on Monday were saying, Hosanna, save now. Can you imagine the emotion, the excitement, the eager expectations as you're welcoming the coming messianic king who would fulfill the promises of the Davidic covenant? That finally, that golden age of the kingdom was coming where Rome would be conquered and toppled and finally we would be delivered from our oppressor and he rides into Jerusalem and turns over the table and he cracks the whips and he drives out the vendors affecting their income, their livelihood, their money and their power. And he teaches people for the next couple of days and he stumps many of them and he offends many of them and he didn't conquer the oppressor Rome at that point as they expected him to. He delivered a freedom that they did not expect him to deliver. Not from Rome, but from sin, Satan, and death. 
He gave a power and a prosperity that they had not expected, not gold and silver and, and all of the material prosperity of the nation, rather life and peace and joy and hope eternal in Jesus Christ. He conquered the true enemy, not Caesar. He conquered the true oppressor, Satan, sin, and death, not the one they had expected. And just like those people who were too eagerly waiting for a Messiah, waiting for a king, we also, 2,000 years later, are living in a day where evil, wicked, sin, oppression, destruction is before our eyes. And we too, as the people of God, as the church, are longing for the arrival of the king, the return of the king. There are no Lord of the Rings fans in the house. We eagerly await a king praying and longing for a king. We look at everything around the world and we wonder when will he come and we feel and we look and we go, it's gotta be soon. He's gotta be coming back, right? We see all these things and we want and expect him to come and do what we want and expect him to come and do. And if we're not careful, we will just like the people 2,000 years ago place our expectation on what he will do and we can be disappointed and disillusioned and leave. How many millions of people have not believed in Jesus and have not followed him because he didn't do what they expected him to do? Maybe in your life you've had moments, you've had times where you expect God to do something for you and he didn't do what you expected him to do. Hopefully we don't find ourselves amongst those who would then turn from him because he didn't fulfill our, our expectations. And the question is, are we longing for the return of the king? Are we hoping to see his kingdom come? Are we praying with all the saints of history and throughout generations saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Are we declaring, Hosanna, save now? Or are we longing for a king who will fix the here and now? Who will fix our country, fix our 401ks, fix our way of life, restore the golden age, the good old days. And we should be involved in our civil service and we should be involved in our communities. We should seek the welfare of the place we, we are. But Jesus would declare to all of us, my kingdom is not of this world. And if you read Revelation and Daniel and Matthew and Ezekiel and all the eschatological prophecies of Scripture, our hope is for the eternal kingdom of God. The hope of the believer, the prayer of the believer, as I have daughters that I'm raising this day and age. I remember when I was younger thinking, Lord, don't come before this happens and don't come before I get to do this and don't come before this. And now I'm looking around and I'm going, please, now. Please, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. Matthew chapter 25, we won't go there, but Jesus shares a parable of 10 virgins, five wise and five foolish. They're waiting for the bridegroom to come 
that they can have a marriage feast. And the five foolish ones, they took their lamps with no oil, and they're caught up, they're lazy, they slumber, they fall asleep. Someone comes in and starts crying out, the bridegroom is coming. The five, wise, the five wise virgins had kept their lamps full, kept their wicks trimmed, ready, looking, longing for the arrival of the bridegroom. And when that voice is called saying, the bridegroom is coming, the five wise jump up. They've got their lamps full and ready, and they go with the procession to the wedding feast. And the five foolish virgins go, hey, so some of you, give us some of your oil. We're not ready. Can you give us some? And then essentially, long story short, they say, nope, you should have been ready. Go get your own oil. And they go try. And then they're locked out. There's two thoughts today. What are we expecting from Jesus? What kind of king are we looking for? And then the second question, similarly but different, is are we looking for him? Are we longing for him? In America, it is so easy to have our eyes on the here and now, have our eyes on our 401k, our retirements, our, our hopes, our goals, our ambitions, what we want to accomplish, our, our white picket fence with Lassie and our kids and, and our kids' sports and their trophies and their accomplishments and their grades and all the different things in our life. It is so easy for us to let things that are good, that are not evil, to cause us to fall into slumber wherein we are not longing for our king, where we are not keeping our lamps full where we're not waiting and staying ready for the arrival of the king. And secondly, it's easy for us to lose sight or to lose faith or to lose hope because we are expecting a king like they did back then to do what they were hoping and expecting he would do. And let me say this, Jesus is the king and Lord eternal. He owes none of us a thing. He is not obligated to fulfill any of our expectations. Yet he is good and he loves us and he has good for us. God, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts. We cry out with the crowd, Lord, let us be genuine in saying, Hosanna, save now, King of glory. Let us not be distracted by the things of this world wherein we slumber and we sloth and we live for the here and now, but let us keep our lamps full and ready and trimmed, longing for the day that we would hear, here he comes. Help us to, to not be seduced by the things of this world. Help us not be drawn away by things that are unworthy of our time, unworthy of our affections, unworthy of our resources. Lord, let our lives, let our mouths and our lives declare, Hosanna in the highest, save now.